0: Welcome to Lit, a podcast dedicated to life, liturgy, and the pursuit of holiness. I'm Bryn,
1: and I'm Justin, and we're coming to you from beautiful Austin, Texas,
0: where each week we're talking about liturgy in everything from daily living to following Christ.
1: Welcome to Lit. Today we are going to pick up and transition a little bit from uh, calling, as we talked about last week. Uh, We have a wonderful guest here, Bertie Pearson, the rector at Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, whom you might remember a little from a previous episode, is back. And what we want to do is we want to talk about apostolic succession. And we could think of no one better to lecture us on apostolic succession than Bertie Pearson, who knows all things apostolic succession. So, Bertie, why don't you just get us started by unpacking that uh, that phrase um, and that terminology a little bit for us? Because I don't think um, everybody understands what apostolic succession is, or even I don't even know if we clergy use it that as often as we probably should when we talk about things. If that makes sense, so I, I don't know that it's a term that gets thrown around enough for people to understand what it might mean. So why don't you jump in there, Bertie?
2: Sure. Well, this week in the Daily Office, we saw in Luke, Christ mm-hmm. on the plane, and he's surrounded by the disciples, and he calls out these 12 apostles. So the apostles were disciples first, and then are chosen as apostles, which you know really just means the sent, and they're sent for a specific mission. So before the Pentecost, as you may remember, the apostles are kind of chumps like the rest of us. They, Christ will say, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, and they'll be like, oh, he's mad because we forgot to get Wonder Bread for the picnic. And he's like, what are you talking about? So, I mean, they're, they're very human. We see, obviously, Judas betray Christ in this horrific way. Peter deny Christ three times. Thomas doubts the possibility of resurrection. Um, and then after the Pentecost everything changes. So they're literally filled with God, the Holy Spirit. And they go from being very normal in the way that we are to fanning out across the Roman Empire and even beyond the bounds of the Roman Empire. So fanning out from from Spain to India and kind of everywhere in between. And everywhere they go, they found churches. And I mean, they're just like, it's astonishing. In one generation, less than one generation, Christianity gets founded across what was to them a giant chunk of the known world um, and when they're founding these churches they're walking into a city where people have never heard of christianity or maybe you've never even heard of judaism and they're telling this crazy story about god becoming a baby and living this life of perfect love and goodness and then dying on a cross the most humiliating way you could possibly die and then rising again destroying death ascending into heaven And so they found these churches in which people are literally willing to die to be a Christian because it's deeply illegal and problematic in the Roman Empire. So the apostles go from pretty regular to being these kind of superheroes of the faith that found churches everywhere. And wherever they go, we see this in Acts, we see this in Paul's letters, wherever they go, they'll hang out for a number of years and they they build Christian community They preach and they teach. And as they're about ready to move on, they consecrate someone as a a bishop, as a kind of elder in the church, someone, someone with oversight of the church. And that person's role, the bishop's role, is really to be the primary teacher of that community. So now we think of bishops as people who do lots of things. They're men and women who have a diverse portfolio. They have to manage funds. They are employing people in the church. They are kind of regulating all these things. Um, and that is that is oversight. But the, the primary role of the bishop is to be the chief teacher of the diocese. So apostolic succession is literally just this chain of laying on of hands. So uh, the apostle John lays his hands upon um, Ignatius, and Ignatius lays his hands upon someone else to be the next uh, Bishop of Antioch, and so on and so forth on throughout history. So all of our bishops in the Episcopal Church can actually, they probably can't do it themselves, but someone could actually draw you a sort of family tree of Bishop Doyle was ordained by this bishop, and this bishop was ordained by this bishop, and this bishop was ordained by Samuel Seabury, and Samuel Seabury was ordained by these these three Scottish bishops, all the way back to one of the apostles. So that's kind of literally the apostolic succession. Why do we care? Well, I think that's an important question. So we care for two reasons. One is, um, is maintaining the continuity of teaching, and the other is sacramental. So I thought we maybe kind of talk about the continuity of teaching piece. So this is a quiz for the two of you. Are you ready for this? Oh, boy. What, what is the three-legged stool of Anglicanism?
0: Oh, I got it. Scripture, tradition, and reason. Oh, I thought it was
2: rationale, but
1: that's, <laughs> yeah, reason is it. Yeah, that's it. That's the one.
2: So you hear this sometimes. This is kind of a, a, a modern phrase. It's not really the origin of Anglicanism, but it kind of wraps up our ethos in some ways. Um And when we hear that okay scripture we know what that is old and new testament reason we know what that is my ability to think uh but tradition sometimes we're like what is that organs stained glass windows (laughs) you know there's this old church like how many episcopalians that take to change a light bulb and the answer is change my great grandmother donated that light bulb to this church you will (laughs) not change that that's not what we mean by tradition it's not church architecture it's not collars that priests wear it's not calling people father or mother that's not church tradition with a capital t those are little traditions of the church tradition is the apostolic tradition it is the faith that's passed down from christ to the apostles and from the apostles to subsequent generations in the church it's the apostolic tradition so In the world today, there is something like, if you count up all the various independent, non-denominational different groups, there's something like 48,000 different Christian groups in the world, all of whom disagree with each other. Like, they disagree so profoundly that they can't be in sort of communion with another group. They have to do their own thing. So this tells you that if you just pick up a Bible and start reading, it's not as though all conclusions are absolutely obvious and everyone agrees. Everyone disagrees. And so the apostolic tradition is in part a tradition about how to interpret scripture. That's sort of what it becomes. So you hear this term first in people like Irenaeus of Lyon and Tertullian who are writing in the late 100s. So they're writing a couple of generations after Christ. Um, And they use it in talking about how Christians are to understand who Jesus is, who God is, uh, what it means to be resurrected, all these different things. Because there are these various other traditions who disagree. They're the Gnostics. They're the Marcionites. there are these different heretical groups who are saying, oh, no, no, no. The people of the church down the street, they're wrong. They don't know what they're talking about. We've got the secret knowledge. And so the church says, no, there's this deposit of faith that's passed down from one generation to the other then that is the apostolic tradition. And so the apostolic succession guarantees that you learn the faith from somebody who learned the faith correctly. Now, if you are um, Nestorius, for example, if you are this super high and mighty, really important patriarch of the church, and you start teaching that the Virgin Mary did not give birth to the one who is fully God and fully human, you're really no longer in the apostolic succession. And it doesn't matter how many Nestorian bishops you consecrate, you're no longer teaching the apostolic faith. And so that's kind of an into it. So someone can be ordained by the Archbishop of Canterbury who is ordained by some other amazing person, ordained by some other amazing person, and if you start teaching that like, you know, we should have fish that we worship in the church or whatever, that's it, it's done. That's that's no longer the apostolic tradition. So a big part of the point of the apostolic succession is the continuation of the teaching. So it includes kind of how we understand scripture, but it's really like also just everything that we understand about Christ. It is the gospel. We live in a written culture. So Today, if you're, if I'm like saying something about this stuff, and you're like, uh, that sounds pretty unlikely. Where can you have a bibliography? Can I kind of see a reference to that? Then I'll say, yeah, absolutely. Here's some scholars that are kind of talking about what I'm talking about. These are the people I'm plagiarizing. Uh, you should, you should read these books. In the ancient world, that was not the case. So for a very long time, certainly for the first 300 years of Christianity, but also much longer after that. If you heard the gospel, it was from the preaching and teaching of people in the church. It wasn't because you went to Barnes & Noble and you bought a Bible and you went home and read it. Your experience of who Christ is came from the lips of St. Paul, not in his writing, but in in the pulpit. It came from the lips of St. John or maybe his disciple Ignatius or his disciple Polycarp or the disciple of Polycarp or the disciple of the disciple of Polycarp or whatever. That's where you heard the gospel. It was it was a spoken gospel. It gets written down so that we don't lose the the words of the apostles. But it's not the, the sort of point. Um, ultimately, is talking about the one who actually is the word of God, who is Christ. So, um, so we have uh, this kind of situation where. Authoritative teaching is really, really, really important. What you say in the pulpit really, really matters. And so apostolic tradition uh, is preserved by this apostolic succession. So that's kind of one piece. Another piece is...
1: Bernie, can can, can we just pause first? Because there's a lot of good things I want to just plug into uh, here. One is, one might ask, okay... I get it, Bertie. We had apostles and then they laid hands on and consecrated or ordained someone who then, you know, kept kept a lineage in the community. Got it. What happened at the Reformation? Or what happened at the Great Schism? So how do we know that the succession continued? I know that's a, I'm sorry if I put you on the spot, Bertie, but I know that's a fair question that often gets brought up in confirmation class. When I talk about this, people go, well, how do you know that? Especially people. And I'll be honest with you. It's usually folks and they're not trying to indict the Episcopal church. It's people who usually are being received from the Catholic church who have been told their whole life that all of us lost. There is no apostolic success. It ended at the reformation. We lost it. So how do we make
2: sense of that? It kind of depends on the perspective from which you're coming. So um, I guess for before the year 800 or so, um, you really just had every, the world was divided up into dioceses. Every diocese had a bishop. And if you were a Christian, you were just in one of those dioceses within Christianity that spread all across the world. Around 800, you have um, a political situation in Italy in which the Roman Empire has very much receded from the Italian peninsula. Uh, You have these invading Lombards coming in from the north, the Bishop of Rome. So you have, okay, you have these bishops all across the world. You have these five super bishops who are called patriarchs, and there are four in the east and one in the west. So you have one in Turkey, you have one in modern-day Syria, you have one in modern-day Egypt you have one in jerusalem you have this one in rome um, and the bishop of rome kind of becomes the kind of only source of uh of kind of political authority and stability in the italian peninsula the bishop of rome reaches out to the king of a people called the franks in modern-day france and germany and belgium um, and so charlemagne the king of the franks comes down helps out the people of the italian peninsula routes the lombards and the Bishop of Rome says, man, that was great. Uh, maybe we could do this again. And Charlemagne's like, absolutely, call me anytime. If you need help, just let me know. You know, Christian king here, Christian patriarch over there. Well, let's work together. And so around Christmas 800, uh, Charlemagne happens to be going to a papal mass for Christmas. The Pope is uh, rummaging around under the altar. And like, by this crazy coincidence, there's this big crown there. And this like big thing of anointing oil. And he's like, you know what? This is pure coincidence, but Charlemagne, I see you in the front row. Why don't you come up here? We'll crown you Holy Roman Emperor. And the Roman Emperor is like, I I I'm the Roman Emperor. I'm based in modern-day Turkey. I'm in Constantinople. You can't have no, you can't make another Roman Emperor. But Charlemagne's like, sure, I'll accept. That sounds great. So Charlemagne's crowned Holy Roman Emperor. The Pope is like, I have the power to crown the Holy Roman Emperor. And Charlemagne's like, you bet you do. You did it to me. So Charlemagne and the Pope kind of start to reinforce one another's power, and you have the rise of the papacy. So from 800 on, it starts out with this kind of political necessity of maintaining stability in the West and also kind of being the authority of God in the Western church. But the the papacy kind of grows in uh, its own self-esteem. So you get to this point, you brought up the Great Schism, in which the four patriarchs of the East are like, what happened to the old way we did it, where we just had bishops all over the world, and there were like five of us who kind of adjudicated disagreements between bishops, presided at councils, uh, on the one side. And then in the West, you have the Pope saying, "Nope, I, I'm the boss of the church. It's all about me, and everybody receives their authority from me because I receive my authority from Peter." So you have a kind of Roman Catholic understanding of apostolic succession, which is really that everything proceeds from Peter, to the Pope, who is the kind of bishop who inherits the uh, ministry of Peter, to the rest of the church. So from, from the Roman perspective, um, there, I don't think there are many Roman Catholics who would argue that the apostolic succession does not exist among um, Christians in the East, but there probably are some who would say that, that, that at the Great Schism which was over this kind of issue of papal authority, with some sort of presenting issues, like do we use leavened bread or unleavened bread in communion? Um, at that moment, there is this kind of rupture in which the, um, the patriarch of the East is excommunicated by the Roman church, and the guy who excommunicated him is excommunicated by, excommunicated by the Eastern church, Cardinal Humbert. Uh, And so even though the actual excommunication is just two people, it sort of proceeds to be um, kind of understood as a mutual excommunication between East and West. So, I mean, you asked this really big question that involves a lot of history. Uh, So I think from the Roman perspective, um, anyone who breaks with the Bishop of Rome is in a sense outside the apostolic succession. From the Eastern perspective, I think that they would be probably a bit more generous. So if um, If a Roman Catholic priest wants to be received in the Orthodox Church in Russia, I don't think they would reordain that priest. I think that they would recognize, and this may be wrong, but I know there are certainly cases in which priests um, are received by saying the Nicene Creed and maybe making other um, creedal assertions. And again, I'm not Orthodox, so I don't really know, but this is my impression, and be received into the church. In the same way, we would also receive an Orthodox priest or Roman Catholic priest, we would not reordain them because they have been ordained by a bishop within the apostolic succession. Um, In the Eastern Orthodox Church, we almost reached this point of communion between the Russian Orthodox Church and the Episcopal Church in America um, in the 19th century. That sort of fell apart when uh, Metropolitan Tikhon passed away. But there's always been this sort of sense that there are these three Catholic traditions, the Anglican tradition, the Orthodox tradition, and the Roman Catholic tradition, these kind of three branches of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church that um, to some degree may recognize one another's uh, validity in the apostolic succession, and to other degrees may say, nope, it's just us, these other two branches, those are not even part of the tree. So that's that's a point of disagreement uh, among various groups. I'm happy to talk about the Reformation, or I can get back to apostolic success and stuff. Where you know, feel free. No, I think
1: this was helpful because I was what I was trying to do there is, and you touched on it, and I'll just reiterate: you are correct that in the Russian Orthodox Church, along with the Serbian Orthodox Church, the Coptic Orthodox Church, and the Antiochian Orthodox Church, they will receive clergy from Roman Catholics or Anglicans without reordaining them. And there's some others, but those are the ones I am certain, certain, certain on in my study uh, that will do that for the same point you made. What I was trying to, what I, what I thought was important, though, and what you said, and you touched on it there, too, which was going to be my second question. And this is a harder question to answer. And maybe all three of us can bat this around a little bit because I think it's interesting. And then we'll talk about sacramental, the sacramental side of apostolic succession. Is how do you know when you use the example of Nestorius, Right. You're out of apostolic succession because you just flat just went a complete different direction. One might say, "How do you know when when we've gone? Like, what are the what are the where are the the lines to say, okay, that is now a departure? Do we really know that? Do y'all know what I'm asking here? Like, how yeah. do you know when you're you know? Because I think today, to your point of writing things down and information, and a lot of the reasons we argue across in our denomination." And in other denominations is I would I would make the argument that we're arguing about big capital T tradition, but we just don't know that's what we're arguing about. And we we're trying to decide this person's in the in this in apostolic tradition or not. And we're not even sure if we are sometimes I don't if we're being honest with ourselves. So I might, my question, I guess, is or something that might be fun to talk about for a few minutes is how do you know? How do you know where 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 does this? Where, 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 where do we go?
2: So, how do you
1: know, you
2: know? I think it's a great question. So the basics are in what are variously called the rule of faith or the canon of faith in, in various places in the early church. And those are the kind of proto-creeds. So creeds like the Apostles' Creed, early baptismal creeds, and all the things that eventually lead up to being the Nicene Creed, which is kind of a – it draws inspiration from various uh, creeds. So those rules of faith are um, – without doubt, the bounds of the apostolic tradition. Um, are there other bounds as well? Of course, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, in the, um, in the Nicene Creed, it doesn't explicitly say uh, you have to read both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Certainly that is within the bounds of the apostolic tradition. You can't kick out the Old Testament canon and still be within the tradition of the apostles. Um, but I think that, that anything that does go beyond the bounds of the Nicene and Apostles creeds that is outside the apostolic tradition. Um, so that's, that's a sort of easy, easy case, I think.
1: And I would agree with that. What are you thinking, Bryn? What are you thinking?
0: Well, I, I had some other questions just to, I, I want us to be able to talk about sacrament. Um, and so I want us to get there, but I also want to, um, to have a little bit of discussion about the, um, I guess more about the why does it matter, because I think, you know, one of the questions that you raised at the beginning, Justin, was, um, you know, or at least mentioned, was most clergy don't talk about this. Um, I think most of our, you know, parishioners don't really think about apostolic succession and not that they need to spend a whole lot of time thinking about it. Um, but I think that there, there comes a time where we rub up against it and don't know it. Um, and I think especially those times come when we, when we hear about another tradition and what they believe about, um, what they believe about God or what they believe about Jesus and, uh, and they, and and they sort of think, well, that's, that's not right. That doesn't seem right. Um, and then don't have any explanation for why that doesn't seem right, other than it just doesn't, you know just a gut feeling um, and and can't really relate it back to tradition um, in the way that that you talked about, Bertie. Um, and so, um, you know, I think uh, I think it's a, an interesting um, connection between, than sacrament and what we believe to be true about God, what we believe to be true about um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, and and what that has to do with uh, with apostolic succession. So, um, don't mean to derail our Reformation train, but uh, would love to to get us to talk about that as well. what does apostolic succession have to do with what we believe to be true about the sacrament?
2: Yeah, I think that's a great question. So I think in some ways you could say that apostolic succession is a response to Gnosticism. So in Gnosticism, there's this sense that there is spirit, which is good, and there is matter, which is bad. There is the sort of like Heavenly astral plane realm where everything is is positive and good. There is the world which is full of all this trash and junk, and like people are awful and the world is awful, and ugh, get rid of it all. So um, that Gnostic uh, outlook is both a denial of the apostolic tradition, uh, but it's also a denial of sacramentality. So in the church, we would say that like people have bodies. To be a person, you have to have a body. If you don't have body, you're not a real person. So if you're just a soul floating around somewhere, that's not personhood. That's actually an unnatural division of body and soul. To be a real person, you got to have a body. That's why we believe, not just, that's not why we believe because it's been revealed to us, but we believe in the resurrection of the body, the resurrection of the dead. Personhood is body and soul together. So if you want to experience God, you can't do it as some like Casper the Friendly Ghost version of you, because that's not you. You have to experience God in a sense in your body. So the sacraments are these bodily, tangible experiences of God, which we actually like feel and take into ourselves and know. And so, if um, if God were going to appoint His ministers in the church in some sort of like vague spiritual way, where like you know someone would be sitting by a lakeside and suddenly they were like. I have a sense of call and I must now go out and just found a church. And I, I will just be imbued with all wisdom and knowledge. Like, I don't know. That's just, that's just not how humans work. Instead, like people are educated by someone else. They're in relationship with someone else. They are taught the faith and then physical hands are laid on top of their head and they are ordained both spiritually and this kind of intangible, astonishing way um, by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and also by a laying on of a pair of hands on their head, so there is like a sort of bodily aspect and a spiritual aspect to ordination and so in in ordination in com- in the consecration of a bishop, it is like hands being put on people from generation to generation to generation, and there 's this continuity of this act of like putting your hands on somebody 's head and I think that 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 sacramental piece is extremely important I think that it 's not um I think if we didn't have that, we would be in sort of this Gnostic, floaty, pretend realm, honestly. Like the sacraments are physical.
0: Yeah. So why can't somebody who doesn't have those hands laid on them, um, you know, uh, consecrate the the bread and the wine, make it the body and blood of, of Jesus Christ? Why why don't we believe that it's the body and blood of Jesus Christ if if that person hasn't been ordained in the right succession?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. This is, I mean, in a sense, like all the sacraments are mysteries, you know? And, and mystery is not um, not the way we use the English word mystery, like a whodunit, like uh, look hard enough and you'll find Colonel Mustard with the candlestick in the library. Nor is it like, oh, it's a mystery. Don't think about it. You're never going to get it. Uh, mysterion in Greek is something that the more you learn about it, the more complex it grows before your eyes. So we would never say it's a mystery, don't question it, or it's a mystery, figure it out. We'd say it's a mystery, spend your lifetime living into it, wrestling with it, exploring it. So I mean, I think to sort of say like, you know, why do we do ordination instead of not ordination? That's a a very big question that I think it takes a lifetime to explore. But um, I think we can say that... uh, there is this dual kind of physical and spiritual gift of the church that is conveyed on someone that is ordination and that is singling someone out for the ministry of Christ's church um, in a very specific special way. So if you were to say um, like why can't someone who hasn't been ordained in that succession or whatever be a priest or be a minister of the gospel, I would say, you're totally wrong. You don't get baptism because we are all priests. You know, we are all kings. We are all ministers of the gospel of Christ. If you were a part of the body of Christ, you are a minister of Christ. Um, but the ordained ministry, the ministerial priesthood, is a very special part of the body of Christ. Not special in the sense of being more special than other parts, but it is a very unique part of the body of Christ with a unique job. We are consecrated. We are marked out for God's purposes. Um, As you guys know, but maybe some of your listeners don't, like if Father Justin, Mother Bryn, myself, if we wanted to like go get a part-time job at Arby's or whatever, we'd have to have special permission from the bishop to do that because we have been consecrated to be used by God's purposes, for God's purposes only. Like we, that is what has been done to us in our ordination. Um, So not only are we, um, kind of these vessels that the church recognizes as as consecrated for um, teaching and preaching for the sacraments, um, we are also kind of set aside and removed from a lot of freedoms to be in the world in the way that non-ordained people are.
0: Yeah, thank you. I think that's just, uh, first of all, so interesting. Um, you know, like the the way you talked about a mystery Um, You know, the more you learn, the more complex it is that I think that that is so true in what the sacrament reveals to us that we sort of catch this glimpse of it. Um, We get some fraction of a reality of it and we have to keep participating in it so that we can continue to to glimpse it, Um, but we're never going to comprehend it. Um, totally. So the other thing that I would love um, for you to talk about for a minute is um, I, I guess is to go back to the the other question that I was talking about of um, I guess keeping the tradition um, you know, i th- I think, it's easy for people to think about apostolic succession and ordination and all of these things is just kind of about our polity, that they're just about, you know, who can, who can get what position and, and, you know, um, and that it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things that it doesn't really matter for our faith or for our spiritual, um, you know, understanding. Um, but but I would certainly argue that that's uh, that's not entirely true. That that it it does matter for our faith, um, and I I wonder if you could um, share with us your thoughts about that.
2: About why being ordained matters. To, no, not
0: not just ordination, but why does why does our apostolic succession, um, why word the fact that we pass down a particular tradition and that we, we can sort of vet um, for lack of a better word um, sort of bad theology from good theology. I mean, that's an oversimplification of it, but, um, but in some sense that's, we do that. Um, You know, when we say this is correct belief, this is, this is heresy, you know, throughout the church, we've done that.
2: I think that's a great question. Uh, the problem is that God is way too big. So when we try and wrap our brains around God, we do a terrible job of it. So God's ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts than higher, are higher than our thoughts. Um, so when we try and just sort of like sit down, think about God and make some sense of him, we don't have a chance because he's infinite, eternal, we are spatio-temporal, we are teeny tiny, we're just on some little rock around some star in the solar system, you know. So um, we can't reason our way to understanding God. The only chance we have of knowing God is his self-revelation. So we have to listen to God. And the apostolic tradition is the self-revelation of God. So without God giving us his truth, We have no grasp of god so if you want a relationship with god i think the apostolic tradition is incredibly important because this is what god is saying about himself like god became this baby god the son was born in first century palestine and he led this life uh teaching so for the three years of his public ministry he was teaching all the disciples He died, is resurrected, returns again, teaches for 40 days. So they have this incredible experience of the revelation of God. After that, they're, as I said, filled with the Holy Spirit at the Pentecost. They have an even deeper, powerful experience of the revelation of God. St. John ends his gospel by saying, You know, I suppose if we wrote down everything that Christ did and said, the world could not contain the amount of books it would take to record all this. So the disciples have this phenomenal depth of of knowledge of God, of experiences of God's love, of the knowledge of the peace of God, the wisdom of God, the truth of God. And so to say, I'm not really interested in that. I'm just going to like think about God and figure it out on my own. Good luck.
0: Uh, thank you. That uh, is fascinating.
1: And that's exactly what we, we I actually, I think, ironically, the last time you run we we touched on this. That's the same vein that the contemplative tradition of the early church talks about is that, you know, how do we tap into these experiences? You know, when we talk about I love how you describe mystery, uh, not not the murder mystery, not not this kind of you're never going to understand it, but this. Uh, And some of what they say in the contemplative tradition is experience, you know, explore experience. And the more you do that, the more vast it becomes, but in a kind of a beautiful way. Um, But that we have to tap into the experiences of the apostles, the experiences of the ones who come before us, because they give us a glimmer, uh, a glimmer into understanding maybe God more fully, Um, which is arguably what the tradition's. Well, you can argue with me. Partially what it's all about, right? Like it's about it's about starting to understand God and our relationship with God and, and, and how we how we how we come together as the body of the faithful. Um, dare I say and we don't have to respond to this, but dare I say it would probably not hurt the Christian church right now to remember that <laughs> like, across the board. Just just leave that on the table. Just leave that there. <laughs> Probably wouldn't hurt, though, if we could tap back into that reality a little bit better.
0: Well, this has been such a great conversation and and really just the the tip of the iceberg, I think um, in in talking about all that this affects, but such a good um, and thorough introduction to what what we mean when we're talking about apostolic succession and thinking about the apostolic tradition. And then the way that we understand it is that revelation of of God. Um, And so important for our faith and important for then understanding our different orders of ministry. Um, So we're going to be spending the next couple of uh, episodes talking about the orders of ministry kind of what what each of them um, uh, gives the, the privilege to do. Um, and the different sacraments that are are tied to those ministries, um, and so we're gonna we'll we'll continue on with that. But um, any final thoughts from from uh, from you, Bertie, or anything that you would say related to uh, ordi- ordination that we're gonna be getting into next time?
2: I bet there's a lot to say. I'll be excited to listen. I might also say, if you don't mind. My, there's a new episode i just posted of my podcast the history of christianity on the early church view of heaven and hell so if you're curious about what early christians believed about hell and about heaven check it
1: i yeah. saw you i saw you in one of your um early in the pandemic one of your questions and answers that you videotaped at grace Right. I don't remember. And forgive me. I don't know the context, but I feel like you were fielding questions maybe from church members. Totally. Totally. And you talked about uh, heaven and hell and the problem of problem of evil. It was very profound. So I'm excited to listen to your podcast. The History of Christianity, Bertie Pearson. I'll link it in the show notes as we did the last time. Bertie will be back with us probably in like six or seven weeks to talk about the anthropomorphic controversy of the third century. But we'll get back to that. We'll get back to that. And it I'm just kidding.
2: Not. I'm always ready. I'm always ready. Count I'm out.
1: just kidding. But Bertie will be back with us. Not for that uh, at some point in the future. Bertie, thank you so much for being here. And folks, we'll see you next week as we start to unpack the specific ordination rights and services for the three orders of ministry. So thank you. And thank you, Bertie, again, for being
2: here. Pleasure. Thank you.
1: Lit is a production of the Reverend Brent Bond and Justin Yon, Episcopal priests in Austin, Texas. Music is provided by Alitu. We encourage you and invite you to send your questions to us via the emails you'll find in the show notes below. We will uh, answer them on air at a future date, and we so appreciate your listenership.